In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday of Easter as we progress across these week of weeks, these 49 days of the Easter season, a season in which we are devoting ourselves to the contemplation of the resurrection. We contemplate it so that we can expect it. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And when we talk about looking for the resurrection of the dead, it's more than being passive observers. When we look for the resurrection of the dead, we are active participants. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We are bringing the promise of resurrection and the preparation for resurrection life into the world. This concept of the resurrected life and of the kingdom of God is one that uh, the people of Israel came to. It was not an immediate understanding for them. And we see this in uh, the prophet Jeremiah and the way that he talks about the returning of the captives from Babylon. If you look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, you'll remember that Jeremiah was a prophet at the time of uh, the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. You remember that they come to Jerusalem, they surround the city, they begin to siege it, and uh, while Daniel is taken away as a small child, and some of the other prophets are uh, standing from afar, Jeremiah is right there in the middle of the city, and he is an eyewitness to the events that happen in the city. And while it is being sieged, and while they are under this, uh, this terror, Jeremiah promises them, about their return from exile. You remember that uh, many of the Jews go into exile, but not all. Those who were tending the crops and those who were laborers stayed in Jerusalem. You'll also remember that when they return from exile, uh, it's not everyone. Not everyone returns from exile. And indeed, from that time of exile until the time of Christ, there are Jews living all over the world in what they call diaspora, spread all across the world. And this is a a kind of a hint for us, a reminder, because we're going to see this again when we come to that 50th day after Easter, when we come to the day of Pentecost. You'll remember that in the city of Jerusalem, there are Jews of the diaspora, Jews from all over the known world who are there uh, to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And so uh, this is a reminder for us of how it is that they are given to live. This is a terrible time for the nation of Israel because their walls are being uh, broken down, their way of life is being broken down, and their understanding of dwelling with God, of God's dwelling place, of the place where, where heaven and earth come together was the temple. It was that central place in the city of Jerusalem. And they understood that uh, they had to keep separate from those around them, that there could be no commerce with those who were around them. They couldn't intermarry. They couldn't live with them. They were supposed to remain separate from the Gentiles. They were supposed to maintain this distance and dignity from them. And that hope of separation is now being severely broken. They also had this promise that the worship that was going to take place in the temple uh, would be this place where they were able to have their sins cleansed from the sacrifices. And so what was their hope? How was it that they were going to be able to maintain holy lives? How were they going to be able to maintain their identity of kingdom people, of people where uh, God dwelled with them when there was not going to be a wall of separation, when there wasn't going to be sacrifice in the temple? 
And the prophet Jeremiah's promise of return kind of hints at this and, and shows us the way for it. He says that he will bring them back. He will gather them from all the countries and he will gather them to this place to dwell in safety. But we start to perceive that this place is not about uh, an intersection of geographies, not giving latitude and longitude. He's not saying that this place is going to any more be this exact piece of dirt. This place starts to become a place where they're dwelling with God in the way that their hearts and their minds are uh, attuned to Him. He says that they will give them one heart in one way. This is not what they would be expecting. When he says, I will bring you to this place, we would expect that he would bring them to that place with a great army. We would expect that he would bring them to that place with a great uh, military and political victory, that he would bring them to that place with great stone walls and iron gates. But instead of talking about armies and instead of talking about uh, being able to separate themselves in the strength of their arms, the separation happens in their hearts and in the way that they live their lives. He says that they may fear me forever. And sometimes people like to talk about this fear and say, oh, he's not talking about real fear, even though your translators continually translated as fear, right? Some people say, oh, this is really about respect. Well, if that's what the Hebrew is saying, I think maybe our translators would say that rather than talking about fear. Fear of God is very important. And it doesn't mean that God is cruel. I am afraid of electricity, aren't you? As well you should be, right? I'm afraid of fire, aren't you? Does that mean I'll never go near it? Does that mean I won't use it? Does that mean I don't know the benefits of it? The same way with the Lord. We have to be afraid of Him to know His power, to know His might, to know His majesty. But that doesn't mean that we hide from Him. That means that we need to um, live with Him in the right way, just in the same way that we live with fire and electricity, in the right way. We follow the, the natural laws of how to gain the benefits. And there are natural laws to the ways that we have to come into commerce with God, that we have to live and dwell with Him. There's a natural law about the way that we live with God. And so when He says, Says that you need to fear me forever it means that you need to learn the ways of living with God that you need to have uh, one heart and one way and he says it's for your own good it's not for God's good that we learn to do this right we don't treat electricity the right way for the sake of electricity do we we do it for our own good in the same way that we have commerce for God we need to do that because there's going to be blessing that's going to come out of our relationship with him our prayer our attendance to him our learning how to live with him we're going to be rich blessed and abundantly given good things by by uh, following his ways he says he desires to give us good things and he says it again that they may fear me forever he says it again in verse 40 here of uh, chapter 32 of Jeremiah he says I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me and he says I will rejoice in doing them good I will plant them in this land and again, when he talks about planting them in the land, he's not talking about through military might. He's not talking about through political means. He's not talking about setting up these stone walls or iron gates. He is talking about planting them in the ways of worshiping and dwelling with him. He says, in faithfulness. In faithfulness. And sometimes, again, faith gets talked about as this kind of very spiritual way of living. Right, that, that faith is just some spiritual idea, that it's some, some ephemeral, vaporous kind of a thing that we can kind of feel. 
Faith is faithfulness. It's loyalty. It's obedience. When we're faithful, that means that we hear what the Lord asks us to do and we do it. That's what faithfulness is. We perceive the will of God and we do it. That's what a faithful child is. A faithful child is one that hears the will of their parents and they do it, right? If we're a faithful citizen, that means that we know our duties and obligations and we're faithful in keeping them. He says that he will keep us in faithfulness, which means that we will know his ways and we will keep his ways. So the iron gate and the stone wall of the dwelling place of God is faithfulness. This is what protects us. When we are diligent in hearing the voice of God, perceiving His will and doing it, that's when we dwell in safety. There is no wall, there is no army that would protect us uh, the way that faithfulness to God would protect us. There is no other safety and rest to be found but that rest that is found in being faithful and loyal to God. And he says that we would do that with our whole heart and soul, which means not a little bit, not sometimes, not when we feel like it, but it means that our whole person with integrity means that we're the same person from top to bottom. We're the same person in season and out of season. We're the same at work as we are at school, as we are at home, as we are at church. That means that our loyalty to God, our putting Him first and being obedient to Him, is who we are wherever we are. And to live like that takes practice. It doesn't just happen in baptism. It doesn't just happen in the giving of the Holy Spirit. We see this in John's Gospel and the progress that the apostles make as Jesus reveals himself. You remember that when he is revealed to them first, that is when the myrrh-bearing women declare it, they say an idle tale. They dismiss it out of hand. They say, I doubt that that could be true. People don't rise from the dead. Right? This is a mistake that many moderns that would make to, to somehow say, well, that's just a tale that people thought long ago. No, the ancients weren't dumb. When they heard about a resurrection, they weren't saying, oh, yeah, just like all the other resurrections. No, they said, that's crazy. Right? This doesn't happen. Even though Jesus had told them over and over again that that's what he was going to do, they said, that's an idle tale. Who, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? When he appears to them in the upper room, you remember they have the doors locked. They're afraid. A week later, after he appears to them and gives them the Holy Spirit, right? When Thomas is there with them again, eight days later, they're still, what? Afraid with the doors locked. Now we see that they've left Jerusalem. They're starting to go back to their life. The fear has left them. And they're starting to think, how do we need to live? And they go back to work, which is a wonderful thing, because work brings dignity. And there's some jobs that some apostles couldn't return to. Perhaps Matthew couldn't be a tax collector, at least not the way he had been. But a fisherman, that's good and noble work. And so those that were fishermen returned to that noble work. And so they are returning to their way of life, and they're returning to their homes, and they're remembering the Lord and they're coming progressively step by step into a deeper knowledge of him this time when they see him the third time they say that's got to be the Lord 
But you notice the way that they don't recognize him and yet they do? Because they're not in the resurrection. They're not resurrected yet. He has a resurrected body, but they're not. This gives us a hint now of what we talk about when we say we're looking for the resurrection of the dead. We're getting ready for it. We're progressing towards it. But what that's like, we're still not really sure. And so they're not able to fully realize and understand what it means that he's resurrected or even how to recognize him. But in their hearts, they know. Now, lots of ancient commentators talk about this 153 number, which is a great number. And if you've been at Jesus the Good Shepherd long enough, you know I love numbers in Scripture. They're very important, right? Very important. From Genesis and the seven days of creation on, and those are our key numbers, right? Three and four. But 153, that's way out, right? It's an odd number, isn't it? It's an odd number. The good numbers are... Are, are odd and even put together and multiplied and added, right? Like 3 and 4 and 7, or multiplied to 12, or 12 times 12 to 144. These are numbers we see. So when we get to 153, there isn't a lot of agreement in the ancient commentaries about that number. So I'll just give you my favorite, if you don't mind. St. Augustine says 153 is the number of the nations of the world. He says, this is the number of the nations. And when we say nation here, uh, we're not talking about um, governments, right? We're talking about people groups. So 153 people groups around the world. And that what the disciples, of course, are supposed to be fishing, that they're coming into, is fishing for men. Fishing for the nations of the world. And that their net is catching as they're getting ready to catch all the peoples of the world. And the net, which is the church, does not break. Boy, it can feel like it's going to. When our languages are different, when our ethnic ethnicity is different, when we look different and we sound different and we eat different. But the church will not break as it brings all the peoples of the world together through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you know, he didn't need their fish. He had food ready for them. And this is another aspect of the resurrection. In the resurrection, we don't see him handing out harps and saying, here's your cloud, and we're going to live in this kind of ethereal, harp-playing, cloud-sitting, kind of you know, ephemeral, bodiless place. How does he meet them? At breakfast. That's great. He makes them breakfast. A coal-fired fish and bread breakfast out of after a whole night's hard work. That's the resurrected life. That there would be work and that there would be breakfast. That he would care for their bodies and have fellowship and dwell with them. That's something to look for. And it's how we are supposed to be the church. The scariest thing that's happened to me in the church in the past two years is just hearing hints from some people to think that online worship might just be the way that we live. Or that virtual contact is just the way that we live. But we have bodies. We have bodies. And whether 
this body or the resurrected body, we eat and we sit together and we have fellowship and we join hands and we work. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing when we see the way that the church lives in, in Saul and in his, his turning from zealousness for the kingdom of God the way he had seen it. So you can see that St. Paul is seeing the way that, that some read Jeremiah to think that he was talking about militaries and armies. And he was zealous for that and he was ready to throw in prison and he was ready to take arms. And then he meets the risen Lord and he comes to realize that's not what Jeremiah was promising at all. What Jeremiah was promising was a love and a fellowship and a hope for life everlasting. And when he's sitting in that room, you'll re realize that there's two things that happens. The Lord reveals himself to both Ananias and Saul. Do you see that? He says to Ananias, Saul is in prayer, which is who Saul was, right? He was a praying Jew. He's in prayer. He's receiving a vision of the Lord. So he knows that Ananias is going to come. Ananias is in prayer. He sees a vision of the Lord. And now he has a job to do. And we've talked about this before. We don't, there's nothing we can do for people to have visions of the Lord, right? We can talk about being in prayer. We can practice being in prayer. We can put ourselves in a place to receive a vision of God, right? We can clear our calendars. We can clear our time. We can sit in quiet and we can wait upon the Lord. We have to do that. We see the apostles doing it over and over again. But the Lord comes when he comes. The question is, what are we going to do when we see it? And see, when Saul is sitting blind in his room, he has to have Ananias come. See, the Lord doesn't come to him again and do the work of Ananias. He sends Ananias to do it. This is the kingdom of God. The Lord could have done everything himself, but he uses the church. He uses Ananias. And Ananias had to be ready to hear the word of the Lord and to be faithful, to be obedient and going to Saul and saying, this is what this vision means. This is who Jesus is. And the great part about it is Ananias didn't want to go. Boy, can I relate to Ananias right? He says, this guy? Right? You know who this guy is. The people that don't look like us or talk like us or act like us or have our same values and who have done things that they're not supposed to do and we want to hold it against them. Those people, that's the person that Saul was. And the Lord says, be faithful and go to my servant because I have a plan for him in suffering. Yay! Isn't that exciting? And so he goes, and he touches him, which you can't do remotely, and lays hands on him, and baptizes him, which you can't do virtually. And then what do they do? They give him something to eat. They feed him. That's what the church does. We touch each other. We pray for each other, we baptize, and we feed. And that's what we're about to do this morning. We are about to have breakfast with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is true bread, and he is true 
drink. And His grace is preparing us in faithfulness, in faithfulness, with fear, to look for the resurrection of the dead. Not passively, but actively, in obedience, and with love of God and of our neighbor.